what does it mean to be evangelical? What or who comes to mind when you hear that word? Is it televangelists, politicians, Billy Graham, maybe your own parents? Has evangelical become a dirty word? What's the history of American evangelicalism and why are so many people divorcing themselves from the word and the culture? We'll be talking about all of that and much more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Welcome back to Theology on Air. Uh, I am Sarah Stone. I'm the Outreach Director for Young Adults at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church. And before I introduce our guests, just a little reminder, Theology on Air is a ministry born out of Theology on Tap, where a bunch of young adults in Houston get together around craft beer and talk about fascinating ideas in um, philosophy and theology and the Bible and faith and culture. And we have a lot of fun, but in the podcast, we get to go a little bit deeper into some of those ideas and concepts. And so that is what we're doing today. Although we're doing something a little bit different today, I'll tell you about in a second, but if you like us, uh, show us some love on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, rate us, review us, tell your friends. Um, same thing goes for YouTube. You can subscribe. I'm not cool enough to have the little hit the bell here, but I think you guys can figure that out. So, um, I am joined today by the beautiful and wonderful Meredith Mills, who is the senior pastor at Westminster United Methodist Church here in Houston. She's also the mastermind behind Gastro Church, which you'll have to ask her about another time, but it involves food and Jesus. So it's a pretty, pretty awesome ministry. And our guest uh, today I'm very excited about is Dr. Grant Wacker. He is the Gilbert T. Rao Distinguished Professor Emeritus at Duke Divinity School, and now fully retired, as we can see in his background. Dr. Wacker uh, has taught Christian history at UNC Chapel Hill and Duke Divinity School for 45 years, so he knows a thing or two. He has authored and co-authored several books, including Religion in American Life, and One Soul at a Time, The Story of Billy Graham. So welcome to the show, Dr. Wacker. We're so pleased to have you. you with us. Let me explain a little bit of what we're doing today, and then I'm going to let Dr. Wacker just uh, you know, share all of his knowledge with us. We have an event coming up. Uh, our next live event is August 10th. You will hear this podcast before then, um, and it's going to be called Exvangelical, Why Some Walk Away, I think is what it's the subtitle. And the idea is to figure out why people are divorcing themselves from evangelicalism as we know it. What does it mean to deconstruct? Why does that happen? How does it happen? What does it mean? And so as we lead up to that, we thought it might be nice to define some of our terms and just kind of get all on the same page so that when we're at the live event, we're not all saying, well, when you say evangelical, you mean this. And when I say it, I mean that. So this is the first of three podcasts that are kind of extra bonus icing on the cake podcast that we're going to do. Do you want to say anything else about that? Or shall I just jump in? Um, yeah. I, so the reason we, we started up with this one, with the question of what is an evangelical, I think is exactly, we didn't want to get to this event and I'll be talking crosswise. And a, a turning point for me in seminary was when I took my first American Christianity course and discovered that evangelical actually has a definition. <laughs> um, I think growing up, I just thought of it as Christian yeah. <laughs> because I was in that subculture. And so actually being able to define what an evangelical is, was a kind of a turning point for me. And so, uh, I, 
I, I somehow got my, my old seminary professor to come uh, talk to us about it. And so that's how, that's how we got to this podcast yeah. that we are in today. No, I love it. And even when Meredith and I were talking about this ahead of time, when we heard that word, when we were little, we thought very different things. Yeah. I did. didn't realize until my like postgraduate school years that some people didn't like the word evangelical. And then of course, you know, fast forward when Trump called himself one, everyone lost their minds. Yeah. And maybe we'll talk about that. I don't know, yeah, but yeah. Dr. Wacker, what I would love before we kind of climb into all the definitions and everything is just to hear a little bit of your own story, like your own personal story of faith, how you came to know the Lord. And then of course, what got your curiosity going about the church and religion in America? Tell us just a little bit about you. <laughs> That's a huge Perfect. question. It's like, like 14 a... questions in one, but you've got three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> three minutes. Well, I mean, you know. Yeah, that, that's about right, because it's really not a terribly interesting story. Um, but and actually, that, that's significant in itself. There are a lot of people like me. And uh, so it, it's, it's not an unusual story that uh, makes for a lot of interest. Uh, I grew up in a little town in southwest Missouri, and I grew up in a Pentecostal church and very much a Pentecostal subculture. And for that matter, uh, uh, we didn't like the word evangelical or we didn't like evangelicals either because we thought they were too far to the left. Uh, they had sold out uh, in too many ways. So if you, if you come from, you know, a, 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 a perspective like that of Pentecostals or other, other uh, smaller groups, then evangelicalism looks way, way too mainline. But um, I grew up in, uh, in that uh, subculture and I uh, went to the West Coast for college and then on to um, uh, New England for graduate school. And uh, my first job was at the University of North Carolina. And I was there for uh, 15 years. And then uh, I began to look for a better basketball team. And so what else am I going to do? You know, just go across. That's how all of our stories of faith go. Yeah, yeah that, that's where it all ends up. But uh, I don't know, with Coach K retiring, I don't know what will happen <laughs> before long. Is Well, we have faith, right? We have faith uh, that history <laughs> will turn out well uh, in the end. Um, so that's my trajectory. Taught at UNC 15 years and at Duke uh, for um, uh, 30 years. I had um, loved it. Absolutely loved it. I love teaching in the Divinity School and uh, having a hand in the uh, shaping and forming of uh, Divinity students who are going into the ministry like Meredith. Um, that was an honor. And uh, I, will, I will always consider myself uh, very grateful for that. And then I also taught in the graduate program and had the great privilege of training a, a bunch of graduate students who go out and teach the field. So that's my academic story. Uh, on the personal front, I have uh, a wife and uh, two kids and five grandkids and uh, absolutely uh, overjoyed uh, by all of that. And in terms of a faith pilgrimage, uh, mine, I think, is, is quite typical of, of many. And that is I grew up in, an, as I said, an ultra conservative environment. And when I went to graduate and when I went off to college, a secular college, um, that faith uh, was battered mm. and uh, it received a lot of blows um, and it didn't crumble, but it, it certainly was weakened. Um, and um, it's when I went to graduate school in the study of religion that uh, it was even more weakened. And I began to find out that uh, all religious traditions are in many ways a product of their time and place. Mm. And uh, this is a blow when you, 
when you grow up thinking that everything falls from the sky and then you begin to see the historical conditioning. But um, uh, somewhere in those years, I began to think that uh, Christian faith is the best explanation, um, mm. best explanation for my life and for the world around me. And I came gradually uh, to um, absorb that faith and to affirm it and to embrace it. Um, and uh, eventually we became United Methodists uh, and uh, we've been United Methodists for a long time now, uh, many years. My daughter is United Methodist minister in um, Apex, North Carolina. Uh, so I'm not clergy, I'm lay, um, but uh, you know, that too is part of the tradition that I, I very much uh, affirm. I call myself a, um, what I hope is a self-critical evangelical. Uh, I embrace the term. I won't let the barbarians take the term away from me. It's my term, win. my identity. Uh, but I hope I'm self-critical about it and that I can see uh, the flaws as well as the, the strengths in the tradition. Well, that's a fantastic segue, actually, into getting into some of the actual historical part, which is why we're here. So to start us off, could you just briefly define how would you define an American evangelical? Rather than in terms of historical, first giving a definition of like, what would the characteristics of an American evangelical be? Do you think, do you okay. think that's a good starting place? Sure, sure. No, I, no, I, I, I do. I, actually, I think this is where we have to start. Uh, we have to have a sense of what we're looking for, you know, when we look historically. And so we need to set out some, some kind of a framework. Um, I would begin with a theological definition, and then I'll move to other ways of thinking about it. But um, to my mind, uh, we get the most traction if we begin with a theological uh, definition. And uh, there, there'd be four points or five points of belief, things that evangelicals believe, uh, things that they affirm. Um, the, the first would be, would, would be that they revere the Bible as a source of authority mm. for all of the important questions of life. We are going to look at many other sources of authority, newspapers, almanacs, uh, whatever, uh, but the final source of authority uh, needs to be the Bible. Now, evangelicals have a range of views as to what that means, all the way from the Bible is an infallible guide uh, to faith, or all the way to what's called inerrancy, the view that the Bible is factually accurate about everything that it affirms. But there's a whole range in there, but all of them would agree on the Bible as a final source of authority. Um, a second uh, would be uh, emphasis on Christ and Christ's death and resurrection as core beliefs of Christianity. Uh, unless you affirm those, you can't really claim to be an evangelical, or at least most evangelicals would say that. I mean, all kinds of people would affirm anything they want, but, <laughs> but most evangelicals would say that one has to affirm uh, the centrality of Jesus Christ and his death, atoning death and resurrection, which provides an, an atonement uh, for sin. That would be a, a second uh, item of belief. A third item of belief is the necessity of a personal conversion. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that's going to take uh, a range of views all the way you know, conversion to what the way I think mine was, was a gradual embrace of faith 
as the only realistic way of seeing my life, explaining my life. But there are great many evangelicals who never have a pinpoint conversion experience. Uh, I'll get the Billy Graham later on, and he's strongly identified with that definable conversion experience. But his wife, Ruth, never had a conversion experience. Mm -hmm. She said, I, I always understood myself as an evangelical. That's how I grew up as a Christian. I grew up as a Christian. And so, so uh, that is understood. But core to conversion is repentance. We don't have Christianity, and we certainly don't have evangelical Christianity without a sense of repentance that I've done some things wrong and I've got to come to terms with that. And I, I have to present that uh, to Christ. A fourth position, which the outside world doesn't often recognize, but it's there. And that is that belief in revering the Bible and belief in Christ and conversion really must lead to uh, a life of moral purity and ethical concern. Uh, now that's defined in all sorts of ways. <laughs> yeah. Key sense there is that it, it's got to count. It has to mean something. You can't just take it and internalize it and say, here I am, I've been evangelical and nobody's going to you know, know about this. It's, it's, it's just internal to me. It has to manifest itself in, in concrete works. And then a final uh, criterion, I would say, is evangelicals uh, always have a sense of mission. Uh, it's good news. The word evangelical etymologically means good news. And well, it's not good news unless you proclaim it. You got to tell it to somebody. Amen. And uh, so there is a missionary sense. Now, sometimes that can just mean uh, living a life that you think is a witness. And that'd be a minimalist definition. Uh, far more uh, common would be the sense that uh, evangelicals support a missionary endeavor, uh, explicit missionary endeavor, spread the gospel around the world, spread it to the rest of the culture. Uh, but the idea of just sort of hiding your, your faith, you know, under the bed, I mean, that's alien to evangelical. So I would say revering the Bible, uh, an affirmation about the nature of Christ, the necessity of conversion, the necessity of a moral life growing out of that, and then also a sense of mission. To convey that message. It's already so no, helpful. <laughs> I yeah, like no, this is fantastic. This, this yeah. is fantastic. So I think the second question would um would be where did it come from? And and I do want to give a word of clarification here because even I remember remember back when I was in your class in seminary, I was in our study group and there was so much confusion because again, if you grew up evangelical, you didn't call it evangelical, you called it Christian, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're like, this is just, I'm just Christian. Mm -hmm. And there was so much confusion. And one, one guy raised a hand and said, aren't we all supposed to be evangelical? And because he's thinking about evangelical as a theological term and what the precept said, or I should, I don't remember what they're called, the TA, the, the person said, he said, okay, there are all kinds of terms out there. When you do it, in, when you put them in a lowercase, they are describing a theological term when you put them in an uppercase they're describing a particular group of people so hmm. i am catholic in that i believe i belong to the universal church but if you put it in an uppercase c i am not a member of the roman catholic church which is a particular institution and he said i am orthodox in that i hold to ancient christian beliefs with mm -hmm. a lowercase o but i am not a member of the orthodox mm -hmm. christian church with an uppercase yeah. o and he said the same is true with 
evangelicals. I am evangelical with a lowercase e in that I believe that in the good news, but I'm not necessarily big E, uh, which is not, which is not just believing in the good news. It's, it's a particular group within American Christianity. Hmm. Um, and it, 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 Christianity is a bigger bubble than, than just mm-hmm. evangelicalism. Um, and so that was, I, I think just getting people, people's minds around that evangelicalism is a particular group is helpful um, in some respects and has a history within the United States, Um, came from a particular trajectory of American Christianity. Um, I wonder if you would, if the next step would be you saying a few words about um, where you think American evangelicalism especially originated from. Yeah, uh, good question. And uh, I think your preceptor uh, taught you well. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. is gained by the uppercase and the lowercase. And um, one of the ironies here is that evangelicals themselves would often deny that. They oh, would yeah. say there's only one kind of Christian that counts. And doesn't matter what uppercase, lowercase, if you're not evangelical, you're out. Okay. Uh, but looking at it in a more historical way, backing up a little bit, I think you're exactly right. And we can say this about all traditions, uh, just as you said, and Catholic uh, and, 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 and others. They, it, it matters a lot if we see it as a specific historical tradition, and I do. Um, well, uh, where do we start? Um, I would start it, uh, a, a discussion in the... Um, 18th century, uh, the early 18th century, and um, uh, and and put it in uh, to uh, uh, the revivals that took place in England in the early 18th century, uh, uh, especially under the hand of John Wesley and uh, his brother Charles Wesley. And John Wesley was a clergyman in the Church of England, uh, but he moved in a direction that, in retrospect, we would see as evangelical. And he, he came to feel that the liturgy of the Church of England obscured what the heart of Christianity must be. The heart of Christianity must be a heartfelt embrace of Christ and Christian faith. The heart is central. You've got to embrace it. And uh, we often say that, we often quote Wesley as, as uh, saying that, um, in his own conversion experience that he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Mm. Now, as it happens, Wesley only said that once. He never went back to that himself, but you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of evangelicals have picked up on that phrase, my heart strangely warmed. Very closely related to that is Charles, his brother who was a songwriter, wrote more than 6,000 hymns. And I used to quip, you may remember, Meredith, I quipped the classes. If it weren't for Charles, we probably never would have heard of John. Charles was the great hymn writer. And Sunday after Sunday, people sing these great hymns. And that's how they internalize it. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great mm. praise. You see, that? that's what brings it home. So it is the heart understood in different ways. Then we move to the colonies. And uh, there we have a somewhat different strain that feeds into this Wesleyan strain. It feeds in very easily. And there I would look to uh, primarily preacher George Whitfield, spelled Whitefield, and to local preachers uh, like Sarah Osborne. And let's take Whitfield. 
Ah, he was, by any account, he was a fantastic preacher. He was charismatic. He was exciting. He brought people to faith by the thousands. Uh, Sarah Osborne was a local, uh, local preacher in New England. And we often lose sight of the role of these local preachers and particularly women who uh, spoke to smaller groups, but they helped solidify and cement that sense of commitment. Uh, what's important about Whitfield and Osborne is their stress upon the individual. They didn't say this, this is 20th century phrase, but I would attribute it to them. God has no grandchildren. Mm. Church doesn't matter. Each of us individually has to make a choice. And then that second word, choice. We choose Christ. It's an active individual choice. You don't become a Christian simply by birth in the church, all right? A uh, 20th century evangelical preacher of some fame, Billy Sunday, says, uh, being a member of a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than uh, uh, parking your car in a garage uh, gives you a a great running car. I mean, it takes takes individual choice. Well, that's a historical tradition. It's England and the American colonies and these various streams come together. Then I'd go to the 19th century in the US and evangelicalism began to take uh, a a different kind of shape um, in, in the US. And I, I would say that, that those theological streams stay similar. They don't change radically. But what does change radically is that evangelicalism begins to spread into the culture. Instead of being a minority religion, minority in the sense of statistical, it becomes a majority religion. It becomes the religion of the culture. And so evangelicals establish a benevolent empire that, reform. They try to reform society. Uh, But more ominously, evangelicals become deeply entwined in slavery. A minority of them, mostly in the North, and white and black in the North come to oppose slavery. In the South, the great majority of evangelicals affirm slavery as taught by the Bible And uh, this would be the overwhelming position of white evangelicals. Uh, The records are sparse, but what we know of the thinking of black enslaved evangelicals would never have uh, taken this position. So we we get a a racial divide uh, as well as an ideological divide in the 19th century. So it spreads into the whole culture. Much of it takes on a reformist mode changing the society, establishing asylums and uh, orphanages and all of these things, but it also becomes entwined in the institution of slavery. Can I just clarify one thing? When you're saying a reformist mood, you're not talking about the reformed church. You're Mm -hmm. talking about reforming the culture. Absolutely. This is small R. Yes. Small R reform. Uh Um, And they established, let's let's say, uh, what in the 19th century is called uh, asylums for the insane. We today call uh, uh, institutions for people with with special needs. But in their view, this was a way of serving people who had not been, were not served in the church. 
or um, to a lesser extent, um, concern for, say, uh, child labor. Uh, some of them were pacifists, concern for war. So a variety of social concerns they tried to address. But the overwhelming social issue that obscured everything else was enslavement. And how are they going to deal with that? Uh, and as I said, a minority of them opposed it, fought it. They, many came to be known as abolitionists. Uh, a majority supported it, either implicitly or explicitly. And we find explicit support for slavery, especially in the South, but among whites. And so we have a racial divide here, which of course is not surprising. Now that's a 19th century shift. All right. Now we come into the 20th century and um, some very important things happen uh, to the tradition. Uh, they know that it, it, it's risky uh, to make a one-to-one -one correlation. I mean, in the very broadest sense, the conservative evangelicals of the 19th century, by conservative, I mean those who are at home uh, with the institutions uh, at ease in Zion, including slavery. And in general, they become conservative evangelicals of the 20th century and in the early 20th century, a name change takes place. And they're no longer known as conservative evangelicals, but they come to be known as fundamentalists. Why? Because they're affirming, as they see it, the fundamentals mm -hmm. of Christian faith. And at that point, that would not have been a negative term, right? No, 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 it was not. Uh, right, it, that, was, that was their self-definition of, of, of who they were. Yeah, that was not a negative term. Uh, they were proud of it. And they still are. Fundamentalists today are, are very proud of it. And, and, and what is important to see here is that they are affirming the fundamentals of Christian faith in the face of rising secularism. Hmm. The mainline liberal church, which we haven't talked about. I mean, that, hmm. that's another story. The mainline liberal church had, in their view, um, given their heart to secularism, the evolution, the biblical criticism, uh, to the looseness of secular culture uh, in the 1920s, they called it the flapper age. Okay. Uh, the mainline church had given in to secularism. So fundamentalists are affirming the fundamentals of the faith over against this sacrifice of the, the heart, the fundamentals of the, of the church. Now, I, I think it would be unfair to, well, I not think it'd be unfair to think that, to say that 20th century fundamentalists affirmed slavery. They did not, but they did. They were very comfortable with segregation. They were very comfortable with what today we call racism, the stratification of, uh, of races. The other side of 19th century evangelicalism, the abolitionist side, the part that resisted slavery, uh, the part that, uh, uh, say, supported pacifism and uh, uh, aid to the poor, those were the people who in the 20th century then came to be known as evangelicals, or differently stated, they perpetuated the name. They retained the name that it always had in the 19th century, so they kept on, and it was this conservative group that had a different name. And it, it, this is a twist of history that journalists, you know, bless their hearts. I mean, they often miss uh, that uh, we go through a name change here, but it's a very important name change. So we have 
mainstream uh, or more liberal evangelicals who like to think of themselves as mainstream. And then we have the, the, the old evangelicals now known as fundamentalists. So when we come to the post-World War II era, we really have these two kinds of evangelicalism out there, fundamentalism and then historic evangelicals. Keep that name. Um, have to remember that there was also the mainline church over there somewhere on the proverbial left. So if we look at the landscape. Those sinners. The what? I'm joking. I said those sinners. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah. That's just a joke. Uh, well, that, joke. the evangelicals, that, look, I mean, I, I grew up in a culture that, um, uh, that said uh, those people over on the mainline church, what do they do? Well, they sit in their sanctuaries on Sunday mornings and smoke. Oh, it's absurd. It's absurd. They didn't do that. You know, not that they, you know, I mean, everybody is smoking, you know, before the night. Grant, can I just ask a quick clarifying question yeah. before yeah. you, I'm totally enraptured by this and I'm, I'm loving it. So I want you to keep going. But uh, at this point in the game, do you think that both the fundamentalist and the historic evangelicalist would all espouse those sort of five characteristics you laid out at the beginning? Absolutely. Okay. But, so they're still in that camp, but there are some differences as far as maybe where culture is seeping in, would you say that's kind of, you mentioned like yeah, evolution. where I talked about variations in each of those affirmations, this is where it becomes uh, clear. Okay. Uh, historic evangelicals, I like that term, historic evangelicals uh, tend not to get worried about these questions of inerrancy. Uh, mm, you know, okay. Is the Bible true in every jot and tittle? They're sure. far more concerned with uh, well, Billy Graham would say, uh, we'll get to Billy later. Um, does the Bible infallibly bring us to faith? So you see, the, each of these questions begins to have a, a different kind of valence. Or when it comes to conversion, uh, are we going to accept the kind of conversion I went through? Uh, a, a gradual mm -hmm. race of faith as a way to live as opposed to this kind of, you know, pinpoint. So those are the, sure. now the one thing that doesn't get modified is the emphasis upon uh, resurrection of Christ. And there, there's very little uh, budging. Uh, and turning the resurrection into some kind of metaphor about mm -hmm. uh, the Easter bunny, that just doesn't work. I mean, there has to be a Agreed. miracle there. So some things, some things are better adjusted than others. Okay, so we come to, Post-World War II, so we've got this split, historic, you know, like your terms there, historic evangelicalism and fundamentalism. And so they not only split, but there's a good deal of animosity. They don't really want to work together. Um, but uh, something else happens um, after, uh, well, two things happen after World War II. And um, that is, um, that evangelicalism begins to be politicized. Mm. Now I'm using the term now in its old sense of embracing everybody. I'm not talking about those individual streams. I'm saying embracing mm -hmm. everybody. It Public. Politicized. Yeah. And, and politics in the partisan sense, mm -hmm. not in the sense that everybody has some kind of political view of the world, but rather it's in the partisan sense. They began to affirm certain kinds of political parties. And this is new. This does not happen in any, you know, massive way before uh, post-World War II, especially in the 1970s. Um, and I think it's fair to say the majority of evangelicals 
now both fundamentalists and a big chunk of the historic evangelicals um, become politically conservative. Uh, they're willing to affirm the Republican Party uh, more often than not. Again, with variations. I mean, it ranges all the way from what we might call Mitt Romney Republicans to far-right Republicans. But they, they more often than not, they're going to affirm the conservative side of the political spectrum. There is a minority of evangelicals who do not do that. And the, the press often misses that. They've always been out there, and they're out there now. Uh, they're among us. They walk among us. <laughs> and they walk among us, yeah. I mean, you know, and uh, they they may not be Democrats. They may be independents, of certain, but in, in a variety of ways, uh, they are they're liberals. And uh, the press often misses there. There's, there's this deep uh, disjunction. Well, I, I said that that's one big change that, um, that takes place after World War II. Now there's another change. And, you know, history can't be predicted. I mean, it, uh, I, you know, sociologists, many of them are, they're dear friends. Okay. But I have a problem. But one problem with sociology sees categories and historians don't work with categories. You know, we, lurk, we work with the particular. And the particular often creates surprises. And the great surprise, I would say, of post-World War II evangelicalism is an individual, one person named Billy Graham. And he's unpredictable. I mean, he grows up on a farm in North Carolina. He's absolutely an ordinary kid, ordinary grades, uh, goes to an ordinary high school. And indeed, he makes C's and he flunks his math course. I mean, you know, he's a very ordinary kid. But for a variety of reasons um, that you know, historians have worked out, myself included, he begins to move out from the pack. Uh, it has to do with adventitious factors like his looks, uh, his voice, the timber of his voice, uh, his command of scripture, uh, his ability to schmooze. I mean, we don't often think of that as a character. I mean, he can schmooze with anybody. His ability to make friends with presidents of the United States. Later on, the ability of presidents of the United States to make friends with him. And that's a key. For all kinds of reasons that are non-predictable, but this one man comes to the fore. And uh, one historian, a friend named George Marsden said, an evangel oh, yeah. after World War II, an evangelical can be defined as anyone who really likes Billy Graham okay. <laughs> uh, or another uh, uh, journalist named uh, Ken Woodward uh, wrote in uh, Newsweek, if you want to know where evangelicalism is going, watch where Billy Graham is going. Mm -hmm. so but at this, so, yeah. I'm so sorry. At this point, taking us back to our two kind of groups, what would the fundamentalists think about Billy Graham? Hmm. Ah, wonderful question. Uh, to a, a, a significant extent, he held everything together okay. to a remarkable extent. He held it together. That said, he was not, I noticed I said remarkable extent. He didn't succeed totally. Mm -hmm. And some fundamentalists just did not like uh, his, his, his ability to say to associate with American presidents. They thought he was absolutely too acculturated. So Bob Jones, prominent fundamentalist who founds Bob Jones college, uh, uh, Bob Jones would say that Billy Graham is doing more damage to the cause of Jesus Christ than any person alive. Jeez. Now that's pretty, that's pretty, pretty damning. Yeah. 
And when Bob Jones died, his son, Bob Jones Jr., sent a letter to Billy Graham. He said, you are not welcome at my father's funeral. So that's how deep. So, so Graham represented a lot of people. He represented almost all evangelicals and a fair number of fundamentalists, you know. But there was, there was that core of fundamentalism that resisted and thought that he just, he just sold out. All right. So we begin to see that politicization, but there's this countervailing force of this one individual who holds a lot of it together. And he keeps that politicization politicization under control. He keeps people working together. So the politicization is there, but Graham resists it and he keeps things in a package until about the 1970s when he begins to become quite elderly himself. Uh, my age, okay, for that matter. <laughs> and uh, he begins to lose control. And uh, by the 70s, he's lost control. And so we see this diversification, this, uh, this, this splitting. One more thing happens that's very important after World War II and then moving into the 21st century. Evangelicalism uh, is, depending on your point of view, either intruded by or enriched by other traditions that flow into it. One of them is Pentecostalism, mm -hmm. came to be known as a charismatic renewal, what I grew up in. Uh, and this was a more emotional expression of evangelicalism. And then not often recognized as the Roman Catholic tradition. Many, a large minority of Catholics are effect, were and are effectively evangelical. They work together with evangelicals and they see that they have a common enemy, which is secularism. I thought it'd be Satan, but you know, that's cool. <laughs> uh, he's part of it. Notice <laughs> You notice uh, yeah. I, I, I turn Satan into a, a gender. He is part of it, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, that'd be part of it. But so Catholics and even people who are uh, have, a, have a more ambiguous relationship like conservative Mormons. But the key point is here, other traditions begin to feed into evangelicalism. So it becomes, it becomes more of a kaleidoscope. Hmm. And so going back to Meredith's point about... Um, lowercase, uppercase, we began to have in some ways a lowercase where we have just a lot of people coming together, uh, but not so much that uh, we, we can't still talk about it as evangelicalism. So I think that's where we are today. It's an enormously diverse movement, uh, more of a kaleidoscope, but uh, uh, there still is this, this deep divide. And uh, some people remember Billy Graham, but uh, there's nobody around today like a Billy Graham. That was so much information. And it was amazing. <laughs> that was I extraordinary. Yeah. I just have uh, like a million questions. Do we have questions from Facebook that we want to? No, just people have been making comments, but no, no questions. Okay. So I think, okay, there are a million questions I want to get through, but I think the the one that's on the top of my mind now is taking us a, a little bit more deeply into this moment. What like what's changed since Billy Graham died? Like, so you've talked a little bit about there's been further fracturing. We've had more of a kaleidoscope. Um, can you say a little bit more? It does seem like the evangelicalism of Billy Graham is different than the evangelicalism of today. Mm. Right. At, at least I right. think right. so. And I, I wonder if you would agree and if you would say a few words about that. I do. Uh, Graham was, especially in his later ministry, he's an ironic soul. 
He did not like controversy. He didn't like anybody to fight at all. He didn't, he didn't fight. He never engaged in theological debates. Um, he wanted everybody to get along. And when he left the scene, I mean, he didn't die until uh, uh, two years ago, but when he is, his public presence began to erode in the 70s and in the 80s. Then those old currents that, that, that had the potential for conflict rose to the surface. I'm mixing metaphors here, um, but you understand that the point is, is that the old potential for conflict, which Graham suppressed, now becomes explicit. And so there, there, there's a, there is this conflict that's driven by politics and then feeding into this. I mean, it, it's, it's complicated. You take, you know, charts and stuff, but feeding into this are these other traditions of, of Pentecostals and Catholics, but they get brought into and they're part of the politicization and, and the animosity. So I'd say one change uh, that we see is the uh, internal um, diversification and particularly um, the allying of people on two sides of a, of a divide. Um, uh, what, what else is different? Um, I ask, do, do you think any of the fun, do you think the, the characteristics that you laid out of an evangelical would be different in 2021 than they were back in, in Wesley's day? Yeah, there was not the, 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 the political entanglement. Okay. That, we, okay. that we see today. I mean, Wesley would have scratched his head. You know? Well, in fact, for, I mean, for that matter, Wesley was a strong opponent of, uh, of slavery. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the issues that were, and he opposed the American Revolution, uh, for example, he thought this was just crazy. Um, so the, the political ingredients were just different, but, but they weren't all that important. Today, they are. Um, do you think Billy Graham actually led to the further politicization of evangelicalism, though? I mean, because Billy Graham, as friend of presidents, was mm -hmm. that was a huge part of his identity. I mean, do you think he he helped fix the problem or he helped create the problem? Wonderful question. It's a very perceptive question. Um, there has to be two answers to that. And that is which Billy Graham? Mm -hmm. Young Billy Graham or the mature already? That's true. Young Billy Graham was partisan. Uh, he supported certain presidents, and uh, he was very clear about, about that. He, he was unapologetic, particularly when he got to Nixon. He was unapologetic in supporting presidents, all right, and political parties. Um, history sometimes turns on little events, a little event, and a little event in this case was Watergate. It's a big event, but in some senses, in one sense, it's a little event in that it deeply disillusioned Graham. When he read the Watergate tapes, he said, I nearly vomited. Mm. And he changed at that point, that was a pivot point. And he said, I have made a terrible mistake. Mm. And from there on, he tried to distance himself from partisan politics. So it makes a lot of difference. Are we talking about say a pre-Nixon Graham or a post-Nixon Graham? And the early Graham was pretty overt in his partisanship. The later Graham, now it's clear where he stands. He's a moderate Republican all the way through. But he, he says politics doesn't belong in the pulpit. 
And he says, Falwell and Pat Robertson, they're my friends personally. I play golf with them. But he said, they bring politics into the pulpit. And he said, more than that, I don't see much concern with poverty mm. and with suffering and disease. I don't see these things in their preaching. And so he said, I, I, I don't want to see that in the pulpit. Now, the key question here is, did Billy Graham uh, create the public space that political figures today fill? And the answer is yes, without question. So Graham's son is in many ways very conservative, not always, surprisingly, not always, but in many ways is extremely conservative. And people are constantly contrasting Franklin Graham with Billy Graham. And the difficulty with this is that, yeah, if you look at their, their expi explicit views, they're quite different. But the father created the public space that the son now fills. So the pre-Nixon Graham created that public space and Billy didn't like what happened. He saw that he was responsible for something, but he couldn't take it back. Mm, it, right. The deed is done. So I wonder, um, thinking about, I just keep coming back to thinking about when we use the term evangelical today. And what's interesting about so this, the picture that you just painted for us, evangelical was actually the, the more liberal of the terms, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it was the fundamentalists and the evangelicals and the evangelicals were the, you know, free wheeling ones that were interacting with the culture um, in a way that the fundamentalists weren't. And today, evangelical seems to, in many cases, has gotten... Um, it's almost become synonymous it's almost with fundamentalism. Yeah. At least in people's minds, I think. Yeah. I don't know if that's where you were going. No, it, it's so for some people, for some people, it's still like a tried and true identity. For many people, even those who grew up in the church, it's now become a dirty word. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not evangelical. The same way fundamentalism became a dirty word. I'm mm -hmm. not fundamentalist, even though that was not necessarily originally designed to be a negative term at all. Right. Um, and the same thing's happening with the evangelical term. And I'm, I'm wondering... Why? Like, what would you, what would be your read of why that's oh, happening? You're absolutely right, and it's it's just gotten uh, uh, just impossibly complicated in the last twenty years, and it's really difficult to talk about this and and you know, as you know, Meredith, and talk about a classroom. It's why most courses in American religion stop at World War II because we have no idea what happened afterwards, and we just sit back and say you know, what are we going to do? I mean, because these mm. terms, I mean, yeah, but that's, that's an important historical point in itself. The old labels don't work. Traditions get reshuffled. And this is just what happens in history. Uh, thing gets reshuffled. All right. So you have to think about some of the reasons why it gets so complicated. One is uh, we have to remember that much of the discussion uh, works in terms of the assumption that evangelicalism is white. Hmm. And a large minority have always been, a large minority of the tradition have always been constituted by Blacks, and a majority of Blacks today who are Christians are evangelical. Mm -hmm. So we have this stream that's really important. Now, politically, almost all African Americans are on the liberal side, politically, of the evangelical spectrum. Politically, but not theologically. This is, you see, this is one of the things that gets fascinating, hard, yeah. hard to parse. 
Black evangelicalism is theologically conservative, but politically liberal. All right, that's one. Latinos are now, you know, since 1965 with the Heart Sellers Act, we began to see significant Latino uh, immigration involvement. And that is even more complicated because Latino evangelicals, well, Latinos break down the slight majority are Roman Catholic, but a large minority are evangelicals. But they're not like Blacks. They're not as politically uniform as we saw in the last election. A yeah. lot of Latinos affirmed Donald Trump. Does not mean they liked Donald affirmed. Trump. They voted, but they would affirm sure. Trump's views of abortion, for example. Right. So, so they're not exactly, we just can't talk about minorities as exactly the same, but still the Latino strain makes things ad additionally complicated. And there is, you said you wanted to talk about um, attrition and people leaving um, and all kinds of reasons why I think youth are disenchanted. They're disillusioned. Um, there's a historian who talked about um, the disillusion of embittered love. And that's what often happens. Young people grow up in a tradition, but they become embittered by it. It has failed them. It's the God that failed in many cases. And so they begin to bail. Sometimes it's just a matter of terminology, uh, but sometimes it's very substantive. They leave and they want nothing to do with it. And some go to an extreme and they commit their lives to combating what they saw, what they see as a pernicious evil in American life, but that's a minority. Um, most who leave, they just leave. They just drift away. And uh, they're not in the pews. They're not paying tithes. Um, good question. What happens with their children? We haven't gotten there yet. Do they have their kids baptized? Do they come back to the church with their kids? Uh, well, we really don't know. So why are they alienated? Um, I think part of it is the politicization, they don't like to see, like Billy Graham, they don't like to see politics in the pulpit. And sometimes that's on the left too. I mean, I will say that, you know, and I, you know, Meredith, far more often than not, when I heard sermons in Duke Chapel, and especially when they were preached by young folks, they were very political, but they were always on the left. It was the, uh, the Democratic Party speaking from the pulpit, all right? You go out there in the Southern Baptist pulpit, it's going to be on the right, but either way, both ways. There's a lot of partisanship, all right? I, th I think that alienates uh, a lot of the younger people who are looking for something more, well, more substantive, theologically. Um, that's part of it. Another part of it is um, the adequacy of secular explanations for everything. We don't really need the church anymore. We don't really need theologians to explain much anymore doesn't mean we don't need theologians, but we don't need their explanations so much because so much of it can be explained by modern science. Um, here, I, you may, I'm not sure if I was saying this back in the days that Meredith took my course, but um, you know, we talked about the New York Times effect. And nowadays, you know, New York Times never will look to a theological explanation from any trend. Now, what they might do is, interview some religion mm -hmm. say well what do you think but it's always you know it's always kind of the tour through the zoo uh you know, <laughs> you know and, and, and you notice how how they always try to get one of everything 
they get somebody on the right and somebody on the left. They interview yeah. Tom Moley on the right and they, you know, and they find the dean of some university chapel on the left, you know. So it's one of everything, but it's always, you know, compartmentalized. The New York Times approach. We have a secular explanation for everything. So I think politicization is part of it and the adequacy, the adequacy of a scientific explanation for seeming. Yeah. So I, that actually leads me to another question I had, which, um, the press, so with the politicization of evangelicalism, like the press now loves to talk about evangelicals. Um, it's, 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 it's just a common Mm-hmm. Um, especially if, if, if there's an evangelical who leaves the faith, like it's, it's, it's headline news everywhere, or if there's an evangelical who does something. And I wonder like what you think the press typically get right and what they get wrong when they're looking at evangelicalism. Well, first it's easy journalism. I didn't call it cheap journalism, but I'll say it's easy journalism. The low hanging fruit. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a low hanging fruit. You know, you call up some local preacher. What do you think? You know, so there it is. That's a great line. Low hanging fruit. It's easy to write about a story if you've got an evangelical. Okay. And um, so I think often the, pre- well, I, actually, I, I like journalists a lot. I mean, they call me a lot and they are friends and I think they have a very hard job. I mean, you know, they're writing about a theological issue one day and the uh, Wilmington dock strike the next day. So, you know, there's a lot of versatility that's required. So they're doing a hard job. Uh, and, and I admire many of them. And some of them are very astute. I mean, a, a person like David Brooks. Well, someone has said David Brooks, Brooks is the most profound theologian in America today. Now, whatever you think of his, his, his politics, I mean, he thinks deeply about theological issues. Or Nicholas Kristof, who certainly is not an evangelical, but Again, he, he thinks in theological terms. And so many of the journalists are, are astute observers of, of the culture. But to go back to Meredith's question, uh, what, what do they get right and what do they get wrong? I think the fundamental issue that they get wrong is their depiction of evangelicals as what sociologists would call an independent variable in the elections. If you know what a person's religion is, and particularly if they're an evangelical, you know how they're going to vote. Like a monolithic way of thinking about them. Is that exactly. They, yeah. That they ascribe far more political power to evangelicals than they have. And uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that if you know about the other features of a person's life, their race, their ethnicity, their location, um, their education, uh, and so forth, if you know about the other features of their lives, you have a much better sense of how they're going to vote than if you know their religion. Uh, religion that doesn't mean it's irrelevant, but it, what it does mean is that it's a, it's a dependent variable. It fits into a lot of other factors. Uh, and very rarely do you, you find evangelicals working against their yeah. social location. You know, I wonder, I, I think... Um... I, th- I know we got to wrap this up pretty soon, but I have my, my, my last question that I really want to get to is, okay. Yeah, we can <laughs> actually, I've got lots of questions. So however many times we have, um, when people, so Sarah and I have been binge listening to podcasts of people who have left the faith. And a lot of what they talk about is some of it is theological thinking about things that were taught. Some of it has far more to do with the culture, mm-hmm. right? Evangelicalism has its own culture. It's got its own music. It's got its own food, 
you got to go to Chick-fil-A, right? It's got its own um, speakers. It's got its own television. It's got its own media. It's got its own everything. Like you can exist within this subculture bubble. A cocoon. A cocoon your whole life if you want to. And I wonder if you could say a word to 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 evangelicalism as a subculture. Like, has it always been like that? Or did it develop that way mm-hmm. as a kind of protective mechanism against secularization? The short answer is no, it has not always been that way. And in fact, in the 19th century, it was the opposite. It was a in it was embedded in the great expanses of the culture. Or as one historian put it. It, it, it was part of the great Gulf streams of American mm. life broadly. Right. That's part of the reason they got into trouble over slavery is that they, the majority of them gave their soul to slavery. The majority of white evangelicals, I have to stress. Okay. Lately, this cocoon effect is, um, is it's a post-World War II phenomenon, largely. And actually this brings to mind the fact that a theological definition is not adequate. That's how I started, because I think overall that's the best one. But we can define that the movement in other ways is a cultural definition. What kinds, these are people who eat at Chick-fil-A. Yes. Uh, these are shop people at Hobby Lobby. Who listen <laughs> or, or shop at Hobby Lobby. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, well, we go on and buy their clothes and, you know, in certain places. There are all kinds of, cultural earmarks that uh, set, set, set them apart. Um, music, uh, listen to distinctive music. Uh, I don't know that. Dr. Much. Wacker, do you have a fish on the back of your car is what we really want to know. He's, he wanted no, to like, what, I'm what, so what embarrassed I, by this have, I have to admit is that I've got a blue devil. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have That's to admit cute. that. But music, Sorry. okay? Yeah. And one of the, one of the great elements of modern evangelicalism we haven't talked about uh and i say it's, it's a huge omission is women is the role and place of women yep. one place where even liberal evangelicals have never gotten the message is on the subordination of women mm-hmm. and but this is a dividing issue between the older generation and the younger generation uh and i think more than more than race, more than ethnicity, more than abortion or the gay issues. It's how evangelicals are going to deal with the gender question uh, that drives us. I, to my mind, I'm giving away my own theology and politics here. Um, but I have a daughter who's a Methodist minister, okay? But what I think drives us a spike in the heart of the movement, I'm mixing metaphors, but drives <laughs> a spike in the heart of the movement is its resistance to its understanding uh, to yeah, women yeah. is equal. I've been keeping a list on my phone as I've been listening to people that would call themselves ex-evangelicals of reasons why they say they've left. And for mm-hmm. sure, whether they call it complementarianism or whether they just call it misogyny or perceived misogyny, either in the Bible or in the church today, I, you're for sure right. I guess a question I would have for you is when we think about modern day evangelicalism, you know, when we think about it, we think about growing up with like televangelists or maybe you mentioned like Pat Robertson and of course, Billy Graham, who... I'm wondering who is in and who is out now, like who would be sort of a couple maybe modern voices that represent ah, evangelicalism, sort of the modern Billy Graham's. I'm stealing Meredith's question. There is no modern Billy Graham. There's no one close. Yeah. Do you think there is a grouping? Is it the gospel coalition? Is it like, 
Yeah, I mean, you have groups like the Gospel Coalition, but they don't have the kind of public power and visibility. Sure. I mean, after all, I Graham overnighted in in the in the White House more often than any other person, including any other politician. Uh, he played golf with Richard Nixon more than a hundred times. He, he 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 his bosom friend was Lyndon Johnson. I mean, you know, there's a kind of a connection with a pinnacle of power that no, nobody com, comes close to having. I think today that um, we have to think in categories. Um, and um, there, if we think in categories, uh, no one comes close to a gram. But if we we can think about uh, people who have, a, say, a good deal of visibility, Rick Warren uh, would be a person with a lot of visibility. Uh, and he's he's certainly become a liberal evangelical. He's, he's mm-hmm. on on on. on I mean, his, his work with uh, AIDS in, in Africa, for example. Uh, advocacy of women, uh, Beth Moore, uh, mm-hmm. I think would be an, an example of someone who has a wide uh, public uh, attraction. Yeah. Uh, music, uh, Hillsong, I don't know that much about music. Um, and um, uh, in some way, the Gaithers. Now, it's, it's not as clear uh, with the Gaithers. Oh, for sure. No, I think you're right. Gaithers. So then the, the opposite of that question, or maybe the corollary is who is now out? I mean, not counting, obviously people that are not religious at all, atheists, agnostics, that kind of thing, but who would you say is outside of evangelicalism? So you talked about like the Pentecostal church thought that mainstream evangelicals were the big sinners that were just smoking in their churches. Mm-hmm. Who now do you think would be, is that the same? Who would be the, the sort of Christians that are not evangelical. So you're asking, like, is there still a fundamentalist evangelical divide? Is that that? But is there also something on the other side? Oh, sure. say progressive like, churches. Yeah, progressive churches is where I was going with that. But I just thought. Uh, are, are there mainline Christians who are clearly evangelical? Is that is that the question? Or, who or are clearly not, not evangelical. evangelical. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, interestingly, there are, but they don't have the public visibility, mm-hmm. and. Who shows up on, or at least Billy Graham showed up on the cover of Time Magazine and Newsweek 32 times. Can you think of, well, Reinhold Niebuhr showed up on Time once, but you mean, can you think of mainline figures, um, uh, the chaplain at Yale, uh, Coffin, uh, William Sloan Coffin, he showed up once, but I mean, you know, these are rare uh, expressions of of public visibility, but that doesn't really answer your question. I mean, who, who would I, I, I go to? I, I would, I would have to think about it. And as soon as I come up with names, uh, maybe someone like Barbara Brown Taylor, I don't know. She might say, well, in a lot of ways I am evangelical. Okay. And oh, well, you know, I don't see her so much that way, but I mean, th- the boundaries are, are, are porous, but she certainly isn't in the, in the heart of the tradition. Um, yeah. Well, and maybe that's a, it's a difficult question right now, because there is so much of a movement to this place where you are still on team Jesus is is the term I like to use, but not calling yourself evangelical. And so it's everybody from the people that are just starting deconstruction, which you even described in your own, your own personal pilgrimage, this idea of like being, feeling some tension and some woundedness and having to deal with that battered. Battered, yeah. But then, of course, people that are all the way walking away. Let me bring up just one name, um, Francis Collins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, One of the most distinguished scientists, geneticists in the world. He's Catholic, but in many ways evangelical. Mm 
Yeah. And this is where the boundaries uh, blur. He's not known as evangelical. He doesn't take, he's apolitical. He doesn't take a, a side in politics as, as far as I know. He gives the movement a kind of desperately needed credibility. And uh, I, I, I think figures like that are underplayed. The, the press doesn't see that. They doesn't, they, it doesn't see a Francis yeah, Collins. More okay, I have one more question. I realize that we're almost out of time. And this actually, out, but go ahead. this has nothing to do with our event, but something in your early definition caught me because this is, this whole thing is a partnership between Methodist, Presbyterian, and Lutheran. So we like rehouse. And Episcopal and Baptist. Yeah, but we rehash Calvin like every single time. Oh, for so, sure. Meredith okay, and I, it's so like our favorite conversation. Early topic. on in your definition of evangelical, you said that mm -hmm. one of the core things was making a decision for Christ, mm -hmm. which is not, which choice decision theology would not align with reformed theology. And yet so many of who we see as evangelical are currently like reformed people. And so I'm wondering how that, how that stacks up theologically. See, but I heard you saying that a little bit differently. I heard you saying there's a, there's an individual aspect of saying yes to something rather than just being born into it. Yeah. So even but... I and my, so I'm, I'm reformed, but Meredith still loves me. Uh, even I think there's choice involved it's because I, I was predestined to love you. I think what he's saying no is more than that. I think yeah. what he's saying is more than that. I think, I think like the L you think about the Billy Graham crusades and like the altar make call a decision today. And the make a decision today. Yep. And the I'm going to sing just as I am while you answer this question. That's cool. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not going to do that. I think even for people such as myself who cannot point to a pinpoint conversion, you still, at some point you have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And that is where do my final loyalties lie? Uh, do they lie with the New York Times or do they lie with scripture? Mm. And as much as possible, I would like to say, oh, the wall, or, you know, the Wall Street Journal, whatever. But I mean, do they lie with the secular explanation of life or do they lie with the book of Romans and Corinthians? Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, Leviticus, not so much. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, where does that final center of gravity lie? And, you know, I'm unhesitating about it. That, that's my choice. And, and all the time, we have to make those kinds of choices. Maybe not, sure. a, not all day, every day, but when you stop to think about it. And so, you know, there are choices. Yeah. No, I think okay. that's actually a really good note to end on because, I mean, we both agree that, that yeah. yeah, we, at the end of the day, we choose scripture over the New York Times. Um, and it makes me <laughs> that's think- That's not a hard one, actually. No. <laughs> or or if you don't, you feel guilty about it, okay? Oh, so we're Catholic now. Oh, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, but it makes me think of Joshua saying, choose you this day who you're going to serve. Right. And we, we go back to scripture and we want to serve and surrender to Christ. So, uh, Dr. Rucker, this has been so interesting, at least for this theology nerd, I really appreciate you kind of building this up for us. And, and I'm going to, I wrote down the, the five characteristics. I think the fact you had five means maybe you're a closeted Calvinist. It's like the five points of the five solos. He just talked about choice. No, he literally just gave it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a Methodist, but at my heart of heart, I wish I were a Presbyterian. <laughs> but they don't want me. They don't want me. <laughs> you know what? We're open to anybody. Come one, come all. Um, let me ask you this. If people want to follow up more with you, if they wanted to ask you some follow-up questions, where can people find you? Are you on social media? Or do you have an email address that you'd be willing to give to people that- sure. Email. Uh, I don't do any social media. 
Uh, don't do Facebook, Twitter. My granddaughter has to explain all this to me. Uh, with, she's extremely patronizing about it, I might add. <laughs> uh, and when I recently asked her what TikTok is, she just sighed. <laughs> she said, I will explain this to you once. Okay. Just once get it right. Okay. So I don't do any of that, but I do do email and it's simple. Gwacker at duke.edu. Just Gwacker. And that gets me. Yeah. That's great. great. And of course, I, I love to receive emails. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And of course you guys can, you can always reach out to Theology on Tap. Theology on Air and we'll send you his way. But uh, as far as our upcoming events, especially if this idea intrigues you, not just what evangelicalism is, but why people are walking away. What does that look like that are walk- they're walking away? Are they walking all the way away? Um, then definitely come and join us. If you're in Houston, August 10th is the event, Exvangelicals. We're going to be drinking some beer and talking about all of this. Um, and then everything else you need to know about Houston Theology on Tap, you can find at HoustonTOT.com. Um, and so, of course, As always, between now and when we see you next, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed. 